Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um... <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. You pop craze youngsters, and welcome to part three of episode 68 of Chart Music. Here I am, Al Needham, and I don't know about Simon Price and Neil Kulkarni, but I am in no mood to fanny about. Let's tuck in. That was my living room, that was Robbie Franklin in the groove. At number 13 in the charts, and of course it was Lex and Co. Now here's Whitesnake and a fool for your lovin'. I wish that was my living room, says Vance, off camera, as he immediately pitches us into Fool for Your Lovin' by Whitesnake. Born in Saltburn by the Sea in 1951, David Coverdale spent the late 60s and early 70s fronting local bands such as Vintage 67, The Government and The Fabulosa Brothers. In 1973, while leafing through that week's Melody Maker, he read that Deep Purple were looking for a replacement for Ian Gillen, who had fallen out with Richie Blackmore and wanted to quit music and go into the hotel business. Fucking hell, what is it with pop stars and the hotel business? Him and Bruce Foxton should have sat up together. Seeing as he knew Deep Purple after the government had supported them in 1969, he threw his hat into the ring and was unveiled as the new frontman at the end of the year. In 1974, Coverdale found himself leading a band that had not only put out two LPs that year, but also made his American debut in front of 200,000 people at the California Jam Festival. But his soul and funk influences were beginning to seep into the band, which pissed off Richie Blackmore no end, leading him to quit in June of 1975 after telling the band, go ahead with your shoeshine music, I'm off. While the remaining members of Purple were inclined to disband, Coverdale encouraged them to stay together and they put out the LP Come Taste the Band. But the drugs took hold of two of them, diminishing sales were kicking in and when Coverdale walked off in tears at the last show of their 1976 tour and put in his resignation, he was told by John Lord and Ian Pace, the last two original members, that they had already decided to split the band up. Coverdale immediately launched a solo career, teamed up with guitarist Mickey Mude, formerly of the funk rock band Snarfu, and put out the debut LP White Snake in February of 1977. 
A year later, by the time his second LP, Northwinds, was out, he'd already formed a band named after that first LP. By 1980, he'd even recruited Lord and Pace from his old band and put out three LPs under the White Snake name, and this single, the follow-up to Long Way From Home, which got to number 55 in November of 1979, is the lead cut from their third LP, Ready and Willing, which comes out in three weeks' time. Like many White Snake songs of the era, it's about the breakup of Coverdale's first marriage and was originally written for B.B. King. It came out a fortnight ago, entered the charts last week at number 51, and this week it soared 21 places to number 30. And here's the first video of the night, featuring the band in concert. And oh, cheer up, Tommy, here comes the <laughs> rock. Yeah, this is right up Tommy's street, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Firstly, I feel like I, I should divulge a kind of close encounter that has some relevance to this. Ah. Ooh. Um, the year was 19. 19- 1991, I was at university in York and I was having a weekend staying at a mate's house in Scarborough mm-hmm. and um, I'd sort of done the town I was sort of goggling at the fact that at the stage door rock club I noticed members of the fuck awful little angels swanning around so I was already yeah, quite yeah. starstruck. On the Saturday afternoon we were tooling around the town centre before the inevitable pilgrimage to, to Harry Bob's Cave which of course it necessitated a trip to our price and I was in our price and I think I found a public enemy t-shirt I wanted mm. and I was in the queue and my mate who's like a serious serious metalhead he suddenly like turned really white even whiter than he was and started (laughs) practically trembling you know very wide-eyed and I was like you know what the hell's up with you and he started frantically darting his eyes to the guy in front of me in the queue I hadn't really noticed Uh, this chap was wearing a very expensive looking leather coat and he had a fistful of Beethoven symphonies on CD in his hand and my mate informed me it was David Coverdale no uh, yes indeed and in our price in our price in Scarborough in 1990. Fucking hell. And, um, I mean, I must admit, I really couldn't give a shit at mm. the time because by then, I mean, Whitesnake had had their big monstrous hits yeah. and they were firmly... In my head, at least, I was a Sepultura and Metallica head. You know, they were, Whitesnake were everything that was wrong with metal, you know, mm. for me. Um, that encounter was only topped, by the way, a year later when I stood behind Sky Blue legend Peter Unlove in the queue at um, Ball Hill KFC in Coventry. He got himself a three-piece chicken meal and a Diet Coke, by the way. I'll never forget that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I was close to cover there. But, I mean, at this point in Whitesnake's trajectory, they're way more of a, a blues rock thing. Mm. And they're hugely, hugely dated, even in 1980. Right. They're sort of feeding off the extra energy that Nawabaham has brought to heavy rock. Yes. Um, and the Wobbaham, unlike punk, it never sought to kind of slay the old heroes, you know. It, it, it never dissed the old bands. But this is oh, this is pretty awful, man, um, <laughs> this song. Um, basically, because right. of I think because of Coverdale, unlike those other front men that leave big bands, he's not really sufficient enough of a visionary, um, not to talk about fire and ice like Derek Smalls or something, but, <laughs> but to sustain himself. You know, Gillen goes off and does Gillen. Ronnie yes. James Dio has left Rainbow by now. He's just about to drop Heaven and Hell with, with Sabbath, one of their best albums. Ozzy is about to drop Blizzard of Oz, you know, which has got some of his biggest solo tunes on it. Coverdale here, he's really reconvening Deep Purple, 
without the crazy egotist who made it interesting, i.e. Richie Blackmore, yeah. and, and doing this rather sort of dull blues rock, much as he did with the cover of Ain't No Love in the Heart of the City. Mm-hmm. Ian Pace and John Lord have been recruited by Coverdale, and the band aren't overly happy about that. I think, um, is it the bass player, Bernie Marsden? He starts wearing a subtly adapted T-shirt, like John Lydon's Pink Floyd one. Uh, it's a yes. deep purple T-shirt that says, No, I wasn't in deep fucking purple. <laughs> <laughs> must have been good for Coverdale, though, <laughs> to fucking turn the tables and say, oh, you're not doing very well at the minute, lads. You know, tell you what, why don't you join my band, <laughs> seeing as you kick me out of yours? It's a very Coverdale move. I think he inherited a lot of egotism from Richie Blackmore. Um, but unlike Richie, Richie Blackmore's kind of hilarious, whereas, whereas Coverdale often isn't. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> His appearance in Rock Family Trees is fucking amazing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but the sheer turnover in... Whitesnake and the band, I mean, you know, they go through like nine different lineups in the, in right. the subsequent decade. You know, like he, shedding the skin. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kilverdale's inherited that kind of ego and bossiness, I think, from Blackmore. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, Richie Blackmore famously forced Dio to sing romantic songs and right. Coverdale to sing about mystical stuff when he was in Purple. Mm. But he, I think Coverdale's actually perhaps even a bit more arrogant and brutal than Richie Blackmore was. You know, he fires. Right. Marsden and Moody, because they're not taking it seriously enough in a few years. He starts quite soon after this being heavily influenced by his new manager, John Kolodna, who's who he, John Kolodna is an interesting figure. He's kind of ex-music journalist and photographer. He becomes one of the most brutal A and R people at Geffen. He signs like Asia and White right. Zombie and Madness and all sorts of bands. Mm. And Peter Gabriel and Phil Collins. He claims that he signs ACDC. But when he gets involved with Coverdale in a few years, he encourages him to absolutely start dominating White Snake. I mean, later on, like the keyboardist Mel Galley, um, that we, I think we see in yeah. the video, you know, he has a horrible injury, breaks his arm, has this metal thing put on his hand to enable him to play. And, and it's true that when Coverdale saw this, he said, you can't play in White Snake with that on. You'll look like a spastic. This is what <laughs> Coverdale says to him. <laughs> you know, it's very hard to find anyone with a good word to say about Coverdale. He's kind of pompous about what he does with very little self-deprecation or humour. Um, I was reading a, a sounds piece, actually, from 78, and he says in this, you know, the, the, the quotes are unbelievable. I mean, he says, you know, it seems the media have become alienated from my music, which comes from the heart. They call it heavy metal, not even human, not even flesh and blood. <laughs> and he keeps that pomposity up. I mean, even by 2008, he's still up his own ass massively. He, he says about ex-band members moaning about him. He says, sometimes I just felt it necessary to redecorate the house of Snake. <laughs> <laughs> and I read a brilliant interview, actually, by Gavin Martin. Uh, I think it was in the NME, 81-ish, uh, where, you know, he's asked about his R&B influences. He says, I find coloured boys seem to be able to come out of the closet easier and sing exactly what they're thinking about. Mm-hmm. Rather than do a cosmetic job like your Spandau Ballet. Yes. Ever since I was knee-high to a Chinese waiter, I've been listening to R&B. Because oh. Coverdale rapidly builds up a, a sort of reputation as being almost a laughable kind of cock rock figure and quite sexist in his lyrics. Mm-hmm. You know, he says a lot of the songs that have been called blatantly sexist are about my daughter. I did it, which is a bit Trump Evangelist. Yeah, he said, I I did a song called Girl, which went, you treat me like a dog and I shake my tail for you because she's the only girl who ever had me on all fours doing impressions of horses. Mm. Um, He says, it's better than bottling it up. I never pretended to be a sperm bank. 
Um, there's a lot of tunes where the male is dominant, which the fucking female militant journalists pick up on. Ooh. I'm just writing about it. If I was a faggot, I'd write about geezers, but I'm not. Um, and then his politics come out, actually, in this interview. Sorry to keep on coming no, to quotes, no, but they were kind of eye-popping. I mean, he says... He's asked about, you know, his distance, in a sense, from his roots. And he says, I, I bust my bollocks for what I do. I get paid for it, incredibly well paid for it. But it's 24 hours a day, 52 years, weeks of the year, nonstop. A lot of people want something for nothing in this country. And he's asked about Thatcher. Yeah. And he says, the closest thing we've got to Churchill in that she can unify the country. But she's got front and leadership. And I would probably be in the Young Conservatives. Ooh. So, yeah. Uh, I have problems with Coverdale, which is knelt by this song, because I find this song pretty dull, to be honest with you, and I wish he would have just left it for B.B. King today. We're going to see a lot of denim and leather in the back mm. half of this episode, because 1980 is the year of both the new wave of British heavy metal and the return of some rock dinosaurs. Why is that? Ooh, why? Well, I mean, the Wobbaham needed a, needed the kick up the arse of punk, I would say. Mm. It's starting to get discovered. It's starting to get covered in the press more. And, you know, it's definitely the year where it comes across, hits the charts with the bands that we're actually going to see soon Mm. um, in this episode. In terms of the old dinosaurs coming back, I just think it's part of the cycle. They've kind of, they've had their 70s flare-up moments. It's all fallen apart thanks to drugs and ego. And they now just want back in. So you hear Gillen making music. You hear Coverdale making music with Whitesnake. Ronnie James Dio is back with Sabbath. Ozzy's gone solo. These big, big names, just as perhaps the biggest name Led Zeppelin are falling apart are coming back with new stuff and and uh, that's that's the sort of reason why Simon were the grebs starting to surface at your school round about this time not many before I go any further I've just got to say California Jam Festival I hate Sebastian Coe just had to get that in there. Um, if you know you know um <laughs> Yeah, there weren't many metalers, but my best mate was one. I've mentioned this before. Um, my best mate and my next door neighbour, Andrew Rapusis. Hello, Andrew. The executioner of action. Mm. The men. executioner of action men. Yeah, and I would hear this crap while yeah. playing Sabutio, and yeah. I grudgingly grew to enjoy a lot of it by osmosis. And the same thing happened for him in reverse with Two Tone when he came around my house. Oh. And I actually saw White Snake live really? um, with Andrew at Cardiff St David's Hall on seventh wow. of March, nineteen eighty four. Because I got free tickets off my dad. Right. Um, and we were right down the front by David Coverdale's thrusting crotch. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and to give you an idea of what a White Snake gig was like at that time, I actually uh, consulted Setlist FM to refresh my memory. And it tells me that the seventh song was called Keyboard Solo, John Lord. Right? <laughs> the eighth song was called Drum solo, Cozy Powell. <laughs> That's the seventh and eighth tracks of the gig, for fuck's sake. Mm. Um, the album they were promoting at that time was called Slide It In. Of course it um, was, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, the not even slightly cryptic title track of which goes, I'm going to slide it in right to the top. Slide it in. I ain't never going to stop. Slide it in right to the top. I'm going to slide it in, slide it in. <laughs> um, so, yeah. I mean, he had he had previous for this, of course. Uh, you mentioned his... Um, 1977 solo album White Snake, which, as you say, eventually gave the band its name. The title track from that goes, 
Got a white snake, mama. You want to shake it, mama? Got a white snake, mama. Come and let it crawl on you. Just enough to see you through. And there's a load of sniggersome stuff about a backdoor man, like, you know, like Led Zeppelin's whole lot of love, and indeed all the blues songs that Led Zeppelin ripped off. Yeah, I um, mean, White Snake might as well have been called David Coverdale's Lovely Cock. Well, exactly right. The, the, um, the, <laughs> the sleeve of Slide It In had an actual snake writhing down a woman's cleavage, uh. like a real life spinal tap sleeve, which makes me convinced that White Snake must have been one of the many inspirations. Oh, yeah. Along yeah, with yeah. another band we're coming to later. Mm, and he had previous for that as well in terms of artwork. The 1979 White Snake album, Love Hunter, right. it had uh, fantasy art by Chris Achilleos of a naked woman straddling a massive snake yes it's like it's like dave we get it you've got a large penis you know i mean the cover of this single is a belt coiling like a snake right with the buckle being all fanger he calls himself a swordsman doesn't he does he there's now? a thing he says he says on stage he's, he's famously said on stage times are hard for a swordsman such as i um, and uh, the thing is until literally five minutes ago I found David Coverdale very likable mm. because mm. I didn't know all that stuff that Neil's just told yeah. us. Yeah. Right? I didn't. And, you know, for all that kind of unreconstructed chauvinism and cock swinging that I mentioned, I did find him strangely likable. Yeah. Um, he's no Ian Gillen, but he was still somebody I would like to have had a pint with. Yes. Um, I, I thought he had that kind of agreeable suaveness, like a kind of james bond with the hair of a king charles spaniel mm. and a uh, friend of the show richard ogood once said that all he wanted was for hey, hey, richard he said that all he wanted was for david coverdale to call him ricardo and i get that yes. <laughs> <laughs> like he called richie blackmore right, is that right yeah right yeah yeah in that um, in rock family trees right yeah 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 there the we deep go purple one's fucking brilliant yeah and david coverdale he is so fucking affected mm. there's something about rock stars from the northeast they just put it on big oh, style yeah. like brian ferry and sting but I, I want my heavy metal front men to be ridiculous yeah completely i think that's kind of the deal um mm. my dad actually interviewed david coverdale for cbc radio in cardiff Ooh, and now? that's how i got yeah that's how i got the gig tickets and i think my dad was expecting this kind of spaniel haired dumbo mm. but they actually got on really well and they just talked about blues mm. all night because yeah. as you mentioned that is where he was coming from coverdale i can only imagine they didn't talk politics because my dad's a massive lefty <laughs> <laughs> you know but fool for your loving is one long blues trope about a yes. woman who's done him wrong isn't it you know yes so so it's, it's a different kind of sexism here from the tits and serpents variety you know mm. it's basically the old women eh? you just can't trust them the posh grubs from the nice estate are not quite surfacing in our school just yet but they won't be far off and, and it was pretty obvious that along with rainbow and oreo speedwagon and fucking sticks <laughs> white snake was seen as very much a girls band yeah. You know what I mean? You didn't see many white snake patches on a lad's denim jacket, but on a girl's arse on her jeans, yeah, there'd be that coily snake. Interesting. Well, what Simon said about um, his experience of seeing White Snake live, that is why, you know, the Wobbaham was exciting, I think, to young rock fans, because there were no solos. There were no sort of 70 minute drum solos mm. with that kind of nod to the blues rock of the, of the early 70s. Um, in fact, bands deliberately set out not to jam and not to do solos and were far more influenced by glam and stuff so yeah yeah that that's why the wobbaham was exciting to a lot of kids precisely because it wasn't as self-indulgent as white snake and, and look i find david coverdale hilarious 
um, and I want my rock stars to mm. be hilarious. The politics thing, yeah, it did kind of put me off him a little bit because I wasn't aware of that before. But yeah. if we're going to have, you know, these these leonine rock gods, let them be as preposterous as Coverdale. I mean, this single and the video demonstrates what a girls band Whitesnake were. You know, melodic band, not unattractive, and yes, leonine frontman, and loads of songs about crying over women who's done David Coverdale wrong, and hard-loving women in particular. <laughs> Have you ever encountered a hard-loving woman, by the way? <laughs> I mean, yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, I have. Just haven't written songs Fucking about hell. it. You know. Odd going, man. She, she was a nightclub right. bouncer in London, yeah. and uh, she ended up giving me a nerve pinch on the neck, and Frog marched me into a cab so she could give it to me all night long. And um, her idea of foreplay was to bite chunks out of my lip and uh, ask me if I've ever had a go at cock and ball torture. <laughs> I told her I'd thought about it, but I, I just couldn't get past the torture bit. You know what I mean? Mm, mm. Cock and ball messing about with and having a laugh with. I'm all for that. Torture, not so much. But the video, it's your standard rock trope of, uh, you know, the band miming live in concert, intercut with a crowd head banging away. Yeah, I mean, you call him Leonine, and hair-wise, I guess he is, but his nose is aquiline. That's a hell of an yeah, eagle beak yeah. he's got going on there. You, you notice it when he throws his head back in anguish, you know. And, uh, yes. yeah, it's classic cock rock, isn't it? He stands with his legs apart in that George Osborne, Theresa May, Tory power stance. And yes. uh, the, the lighting rig uh, is very of that era is that standard heavy metal rig of two banks of red yellow and blue spots and mm. uh, line it wise you've got yeah you've got ian pace on drums wearing a bucket hat for fuck's sake yes right um, <laughs> you've got um it's like fucking Rennie's dad isn't it i know and you've got the aforementioned john lord on keyboard so it is basically deep purple minus richie blackmore and of mm. course yeah he only left purple because he didn't get along with richie blackmore seems like nobody gets along with richie blackmore no no no, no. no. that's why i left <laughs> <laughs> but the mere mention of this slot and Pete Frame is sharpening his pencil and getting his ruler out, isn't he? Because the whole yes. Deep Purple diaspora is insanely incestuous. Oh, yeah. There's that yeah, convoluted yeah, yeah. family tree of White Snake, Rainbow, Gillen, and Sabbath. Mm. And each branch of that tree had its moments, I think. I mean, it, it ought to go without saying that Here I Go Again is an absolute fist in the air monster, specifically yes. the 1986 version with his future wife, Tawny Kitane, mm. uh, writhing mm. around on a car bonnet in the video. <laughs> My favourite thing I found, though, while uh, reading up on White Snake for this was this sentence on uh, on the Wikipedia entry: Coverdale is known in particular for his powerful blues-tinged voice, as well as his vibrant, caring, and loving stage persona. <laughs> vibrant, caring, and loving. I mean, I I don't know who wrote that, but I'll be a fool for your vibrant, caring, loving no more, David Coverdale. <laughs> Fucking hell. It's mad, actually, that John Lord's in this band. Yeah. I mean, John Lord's going to turn 40 next year, you know, in 81. Um, John Lord's mm. locking on. So seeing him on stage with him, and what is Ian Pace wearing? Um, he never... <laughs> He never dressed like that in purple, and I know purple was a long time before this, but I don't know what look he's aiming for at all there. But I think it's yeah. telling. It's not all denim and leather. That's the thing. It's this kind of Allman Brothers band kind of look almost. Mm. There's a sort of southern yeah. rock feel to it, and I think that reveals the influences behind the band as well. Yeah, I mean, the band, apart from Covered Up, they look fucking old and tubby, don't they? <laughs> but the one thing that did excite me, did you notice the guitarist and his red sweatshirt? No. He's got a slogan on his T-shirt, oh, right. here... 
comes and the rest uh. is obscured by his guitar. So you can imagine my feelings on, on looking at this. But sadly, I looked at the bits of the video that Top of the Pops cut away from and disappointingly, the obscured word is trouble. Oh, right. And of course, as mentioned in a previous chart music, Slade really nicked off this for Lock Up Your Daughters, oh, didn't they? Yeah. I don't yes. remember that one. Yeah, I think you're right. Mm. Anything else to say? Oh, just one last quote from Dave. He's asked about Prince. Oh, God, where's this going? <laughs> oh, fuck me. No, it's not so bad. He goes, the coloured chappy from Michigan. Oh, no. And then he oh, says, no. it's all a bit too nice for me. You've got to remember, I was weaned on Sly and the Family Stone, Jimmy Brown, and all that. Nothing stands up to it nowadays. So there you go. So the following week, Fall For Your Loving jumped nine places to number 21, and two weeks later it got to number 13, its highest position. The follow-up, Ready and Willing, got to number 43 in July of 1980, but they'd roar back in 1981 when Don't Break My Heart Again got to number 17 in May of 1981, and they'd have seven more top 40 hits throughout the 80s, including top 10 placings for Is This Love and Here I Go Again in 1987. Rock! That's nodding sagely says, ooh, nice to see heavy music back in the charts. Then he tells us what else he thinks is nice. The return of Jimmy Ruffin with Hold On To My Love. Born in Collinsville, Mississippi in 1936, Jimmy Ruffin was the son of a sharecropper who was a member of the gospel group The Singing Nightingales with his little brother David. In 1961, he linked up with Motown as a session singer, only to have his career interrupted by the draft. When he got out of the army in 1964, he was offered Elbridge Bryant's spot in The Temptations, but recommended his brother to Barry Gordy instead, saying that he looked more like a temptation than he did, and continued to record as a solo artist for the Motown subsidiary Soul. In 1966, he got wind of a song which had been demoed for the Detroit Spinners and begged the songwriters to let him bagsy it. When they did, the single, What Becomes of the Broken Hearted, got to number seven in America and number eight over here in the first week of 1967. The success of that single set him up to become one of the most prominent Motown artists of the 60s in the UK, which peaked in 1970 when he scored a prile of top 10 hits with Farewell is a Lonely Sand, I'll Stay Forever My Love and It's Wonderful. And he resurfaced in 1974 with a re-release of What Becomes of the Broken Hearted getting to number 4 in August of that year. By then, he'd already left Motown and put out two LPs for Polydor, which were only released in the UK and failed to chart, and he spent the late 70s in the wilderness until he was picked up by RSO Records last year. 
This is the follow-up to Falling in Love with You, which fell to chart in 1977, and it's the lead-off cut from his 11th LP, Sunrise, which came out last November and was produced and written by Robin Gibb, with songwriting assistance from Blue Weaver, formerly of Amen Corner, and The Straubs. It's entered the chart this week at number 36, and here's the man himself in the studio for the first time since September of 1971, having a lend of Tommy Vance's Observation Tower. <laughs> it's been a good year for Motown acts in the British charts, hasn't it? I mean, the, the Detroit Spinners got to number one last month, still at number seven in the charts. Uh, the Jacksons are about to roar back with a Triumph LP. Marvin Gaye's back on tour. Stevie Wonder's getting hotter than July Reddit, and here's Jimmy Ruffin, who had far more success over in the UK than he did in America, seemingly on the comeback trail. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, that the cycle of nostalgia was a lot quicker in those days, mm-hmm. and it did feel around this time that there, there was a kind of wave of fondness for 60s Motown, and you know, it's only 10 years in the past. Yes. What becomes the Broken Hearted becoming a, a hit twice? I mean, twice isn't enough, no. because I've just got to say, that is one of the small handful of songs that when you're hearing it you are thinking oh, okay this is obviously the greatest record ever made mm-hmm. you know it's it's one of one of those it's got that power and um i actually saw jimmy ruffin at hammersmith in 2009 and it was part of some kind of tawdry david guest uh package show Ooh. uh with m- millions of singers just coming on doing mm. a couple of songs but even in that kind of context jimmy ruffin doing his greatest hit still had that power to send right. shivers down my mm. spine it's incredible this song though i mean mm. it's slight but pleasant i haven't heard it honestly in 40 years but um i could sing it in my head as soon as i saw the title written down yeah what i didn't realize at the time is what you said is that it's basically a bg's yeah, record yeah. yes the album it came from sunrise had the bg's hands all over it robin gibb co-produced it and co-wrote this song barry and morris turn up as songwriters and backing vocals elsewhere they're members of the bg's live backing band on several of the tracks and as you say it's on rso which of course was the bg's label mm. at that time but that itself was kind of a contentious issue right because this very year 1980 the Bee Gees filed 200 million dollar lawsuit <sighs> against rso and the owner and manager robert stigwood claiming mismanagement now a bit of context for that this was the aftermath of that disastrous sergeant pepper movie yes. that they made in 1979 and stigwood basically issued a 310 million dollar <laughs> countersuit um <laughs> alleging libel and defamation of character and extortion <sighs> so they settled out of court for an undisclosed sermon Mm -hmm. patched up their differences which is bizarre so there's that connection the whole Bee Gees thing there is as you say um, a a Cardiff connection uh, because Blue Weaver Mm. the co-writer on this song plays keyboards as well is from Cardiff and also um, Dennis Bryan on drums he was a, another former member of Amen Corner so it's it's a half Welsh record oh. basically if, if, if there was a, if there was a Soul World Cup this song would qualify for the Wales squad <laughs> right. um, but the thing with it is despite the pedigree of the musicians involved the Bee Gees and the Welsh mm. lot and of course the Motown backgrounds of Jimmy himself the production on this single sounds really cheap mm. and toy-like yeah. to me and and it's it's a real contrast with Jimmy Ruffin's 
musical past. I, I went on a bit of a voyage of uh, soul vinyl rediscovery during lockdown. Yeah. I was just digging dusty old LPs out of my collection, stuff that I'd acquired but never played. And uh, one of them was I Am My Brother's Keeper by the Ruffin Brothers, so David and Jimmy yeah. together. And that's from 1970. And the, the, the standout track from that being the bridge suicide heartbreaker, Got to See If I Can't Get Mommy to Come Back Home. <sighs> oh, that title, fucking hell. But the, the production on that, um, 1970, as you'd expect, peak Motown, mm. the Funk Brothers on fire. Yeah. And then 10 years later, Jimmy sounds like this. Mm. And I, I, I did wonder if it's one of those things that we've seen before on Top of the Pops where a soul singer gets screwed over by the Top of the Pops orchestra. No, I'm about 80% sure that this is the Top of the Pops orchestra because on the original, there's some bells and you can't really hear them on this performance. And the backing singers are definitely different. And I believe they are the Maggie Stredder singers who uh, took over from the Ladybirds in 1977. And Jimmy's singing live, I believe, because he does a few bits at the beginning you know like singers do on top of the pops to prove that they're singing live you might be right Mm. i I played them on a and b back to back and the only difference i could make out was was just the speed of it um so in that case if it was the orchestra then they didn't do a disservice it really does sound that cheap (laughs) i don't know (laughs) it sounds dated um perhaps Mm. deliberately so you know that they're aiming for something like that for that kind of sound and he's definitely singing live here Mm. because he sounds rough (laughs) at times he sounds slightly hanging (laughs) whilst you know dressed in this kind of Giacomo shirt that's far too big for him Um, oh yes (laughs) Uh, would you call that a Hawaiian shirt it's a little bit too tasteful for a Hawaiian shirt in 1980 yeah not quite Hawaiian no no more of a Hawaiian tabard, perhaps. Yeah. And I sort of don't like the fact that Jimmy's stranded up on that platform away yeah. from the kids. Yeah, he looks lonely, he doesn't does, he? Know. Well, he is, isn't he? <laughs> he is, yeah, yeah. Well. He's far too high up. I don't know why they did that. What's that song called, Simon? Someone try and bring Jimmy back from the observation tower. Yeah. <laughs> His feet are obscured by dry ice as well, so you can't even see it. It's like he's just sort of floating there. Yeah. Mm. He's doing his best and he's giving it the air grabs and he's trying to deliver it. But yeah, I don't know. I, I just think it was it's nice to see a genuine Motown star on British TV. Yeah. That in itself would have, I imagine at the time, had a bit of a novelty factor to it. Yes. He was a bit like Edwin Starr in that respect. Um, and, and a bit like mm. Gino Washington, although, of course, Gino wasn't on Motown. In the sense that he came over here for quite yeah. a while and made his living in the UK, Jimmy yes. Ruffin. So I think because of that, he, he looms disproportionately large in the imagination mm. of Britain soul fans but he hadn't had a hit for a while when this came out but around this time as you say at the turn of the 80s there seemed to be this wave of nostalgia and affection and fondness for these old Motown acts so you had the Detroit Spinners reaching number one with working my way back to you this year and then the following year 81 you've got the four tops having a big hit with when she was my girl yes and uh, and in the middle you've got this And, and it's interesting that in all cases they're not trying to reinvent themselves they're not you know it's not like somebody like uh Jermaine Jackson going for quite a sort of modern funk sound with his material around this time and Michael as well but with these acts they're very much harking back to the golden age yes it's not a classic this but you sort of don't begrudge the three minutes of your time that it takes up I think no it's proper chicken in a basket disco soul but it's it's grade a poultry meat and and it's a well-crafted basket but (laughs) you know it doesn't taste like soul food but it'll do for us British cunts indeed in the heart of the Midlands yeah and his voice is always just wonderful to listen to uh, especially yes. singing live, which is why i don't know why he's up on that platform like he's got a restriction order on him or something um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Very odd. So, the following week, Hold On To My Love soared 22 places to number 14, and a week later it got to number 7, its highest position. The follow-up, Night of Love, failed to chart and he never did again, although in 1984 he was recruited by Paul Weller for the Council Collective to chip in with the single Soul Deep Part 1, the benefit single for the Miners, which got to number 24 in December of that year, and he died in 2014 at the age of 78. Now, we played you some David Coverdale. Let's play you some heavy music by a newish band. This is Saxon. They're well in the charts with Wheels of Steel. As the camera dollies back from Jimmy Ruffin grinding out the last of Hold On To My Love. We see Vance overseeing a gaggle of the kids and mumbling about the last song that I couldn't quite catch, Soz. He then tells us that we've had some David Coverdale and now it's time for some metal from a newish band who are well in the charts (laughs) as some girl off camera giggles. He introduces Wheels of Steel by Saxon. Formed in Barnsley in 1975, Son of a Bitch played the Yorkshire (laughs) rock circuit in the mid-70s with a drummer called Frank Gill, a former member of the Glitter Band. Changing their name to Saxon in the summer of 1978 when they signed a deal with Career Records in France, they supported Motorhead and Gillen and put out their eponymous debut LP in 1979. This single, the follow-up to Backs to the Wall, which failed to chart, (laughs) is the lead-off cut from their new album of the same name, which got to number five in the LP charts last month and is currently at number 13. It came out in mid-March, entered the chart at number 66, soared 25 places to number 41, and just when it looked like it would go over the top, it dropped four places to number 45. But the week after that, it rallied and entered the chart at number 37, and they were rewarded with a slot on top of the pops. After climbing 12 places to number 25, it dropped to number 28, but this week it's jumped 8 places to number 20. They're midway through their first headlining tour of the UK at the moment and are about to knock the crowd out at Checkers in Barnstable this evening, so here's another chance to see that performance from three weeks ago. Chaps, I've got a feeling that a lot is going to be said about Saxon and this performance, but before we do that, Just to set things in context, here's an article in Music Week from a fortnight ago which tells a tale or two. It reads, Heavy Metal hitting back with a bang. Heavy metal music is enjoying its biggest boom for years, with albums selling apace and concerts selling out all across the country. Often written off as a minority music of interest only to mindless headbangers, heavy metal is now providing a lifeline for the industry. 
Along the established names such as Status Quo, Ted Nugent, Rainbow, ACDC and Rush, a new generation of bands are making their impact on the UK market. Saxon, Iron Maiden, Girl, Sammy Hagar, April Wine, Riot, Crocus, Def Leppard and a host of aspiring HM bands are shifting vinyl and selling out halls. Last week, Saxon's album Wheels of Steel went straight into the Music Week album chart at number 10 with no big promotion or TV advertising. Careers A&R manager Peter Hinton comments, We signed Saxon two years ago when the UK company was first formed. They were our first UK signing and it came as quite a culture shock when I first saw them performing in Sheffield as it was in the middle of the punk boom. Phonogram product manager Alan Phillips is not surprised by the current interest in heavy metal music. I think the real reason for the popularity of heavy metal music is that if you get into the music as a kid, then you stay with it as you get older, unlike more fashionable styles of music. (laughs) Think a bit of a nail-on-head situation there, isn't there? There's going to be a lot of old fuckers listening to this sort of stuff, and a lot of kids as well. Yeah, it's all because Carrere, the the record label, they originally wanted Saxon to be called Anglo-Saxon. Right. Um, which the band didn't go along with. <laughs> <laughs> like the UK Saxon. Yes. <laughs> Saxon GB. It's a great name though, isn't it? Because like all the best heavy metal names, you can't just call them Saxon. It's got to be Saxon. Oh, yeah. Well, Tommy really gives it some, doesn't he? It's like scorpions. I mean, bless him. It's it's nice for Tom. I feel happy for Tommy uh, by yes. this point in the show. We've had White Snake. Now we've got Saxon and he's going on about how it's good to see some heavy music back in the charts. And then mm. he gives it the full Tommy, doesn't he? On on yes. wheels. He goes, wheels of steel. Um, <laughs> yes. I mean, you sort of imagine he's got, if not a boner, then at least the stirrings of a semi going on by this mm. point. They are the one band uh, on the show so far who definitely aren't wearing Saxons. Saxon. Yeah, I, mean, I know. They're, they're legs, Shocking, isn't it? Their legs are as straight as their sexuality, mm. no question about it. <laughs> but um, yeah, he, he describes them as, as a newish band, and, and, and they were, um, but they, I think they mm. were not quite the first Nuwabam band I was aware mm. of, because mm. Running Free by Iron Maiden came out in February yes. 1980, that was a hit, and I remember that, but... In terms of Saxon being new-ish, here's how quickly music moved in in the olden days, right? Saxon released four albums in their first two years, Mm. and uh, there were just four months between the second and third album, both released in 1980, right? And the title track of the fourth album, which was Denim and Leather from 1981 is nostalgic for 1979, right? It goes, where were you in 79 when the dam began to burst? Did you check us out down at the local show, right? And their their fans are probably thinking, of course I remember. It's only two (laughs) years ago. I haven't even changed my underpants since then, being metal. (laughs) Cheap cheap digger metal is there. (laughs) I'm just going to say that it it feels like a very South Yorkshire thing, the the Nawabam, the new wave of British heavy metal, what with Mm. Saxon and Def Leppard. Um, You've got that whole connection with heavy industry and metal anyway um yes. obviously black sabbath being from the, the west midlands and that's where it all begins and and also mm. places like the northeast and the welsh valleys being real heartlands of metal fandom yeah um saxon mm. as you mm. say from barnsley in terms of barnsley icons there, there's uh basically michael parkinson uh you've mm. got 
uh, Brian Glover, Arthur Scargill, and Biff Byford. Ooh. So that you know, he he's right up there. Uh, have you looked into his life before Saxon? It's unbelievably grim. Go on. His mother died when he was eleven. Um, his violent alcoholic father, uh, first of all, lost an arm in an industrial accident, Oof. and then died when Biff was thirteen. And then Biff got his girlfriend pregnant when he was fifteen. Um, I mean, fucking hell. Then uh, he he works in the coal industry, but he was told he was too tall to go down the mines, so they kind of put him in the pump house or something. Could have got a job as a prop. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. So when when you know that stuff, you sort of wish him well. You Mm. sort of think, it may not be my kind of music, but fair fucks Mm. to you, you know. He seems like a likeable doofus, which which you often get with heavy metal bands, do you know what Mm. I mean? Yeah, yeah, that that's absolutely part of the appeal of Saxon. Yeah. The northernness is a big part of it. Yeah. I mean, the slight humour. And there's a moustache on stage here that's very Ooh. it's very <laughs> Seth Armstrong, isn't it? It's, yes, it's, yeah, we'll, you know? we'll come to that later. But oh, before yes. we go any further, Neil, can you provide a casting vote? Because um, Simon just called the lead singer Biff Byford, and I always assumed it was Biff Bifford. What is it? I think it's Bifford, you know. Ooh. It, although it is, it is spelt Byford. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's Biff Bifford. That would, I mean, because you know that that trend of eighties metal singers having names yeah. that were just daft, yes. <laughs> um, and sounded like wrestlers' names yes. ultimately. Yes. Um, Biff Bifford sounds like the mortal enemy of Roger the Dodger, and he's going to give him an absolute <laughs> bashing after school for conning a bag of sweets out of him. I'm sticking with Bifford only because um, that's how it's pronounced in a little bit of documentary footage, which I'm going to allude to later. Oh, on. Okay. Carry on. <laughs> okay. But yeah, you're right, Saxon, like all heavy metal bands of this era, well, most of them anyway, they all look like grafters. They look like they've just come off the lathe and put a guitar on. Yeah. You've seen the um, Judas Priest documentary, haven't you, um, Dream Deceivers, mm. about their trial in America? Yeah, yeah. And there's a scene where they're all standing there waiting for the verdict, and they all look like a, a load of miners that have got involved in a fishing weekend that's gone horribly wrong. You know what I mean? And, and, to, and to bands like this, you know, Top of the Pops is hugely important. Yes. Um, and and mm. it's not just hugely important in a promotional sense. They've had their minds blown by Sweet and Bowie and all of that in the early 70s. So they, mm. they make a show. Yeah. Of being on Top of the Pops. And fuck, what a sight we get here. Yes. All, I mean, also thanks to the, the stage again. You know, um, I think the production values on this show, like Simon mentioned, are occasionally spot on. Mm. Those Mm. big spiral circles within circles that are above the band. Yes. um, Even if they look a state, and it's a great state. A a massive stack of amps, even though there's no need for them. Oh, yeah. Like the Stone Roses (laughs) doing Fool's Gold. (laughs) But Yeah, I mean, it's a perfect stage set for them. Yes. And a signifier of that massive crossover, really, between glam. I mean, you mentioned the, 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 the Glitter Band connection. That kind of connection between glam and gayness and campness and the Wobbaham at this point. Yeah, the way they're set out on stage is odd. Yeah. Because you, you've got Pete Gill, the drummer, up front. And this is this is a recurring theme, isn't it? It's, it's the drummers to the yes. front episode of Top of the Box. Yes. I was uh, complaining before or mocking uh, Ian Pace for wearing a fucking bucket hat. <laughs> Your man from Saxon here, he's wearing a Saxon T-shirt, mm. which is so uncool. You're not meant to do oh. that. Um, having said that, I am wearing a pop-crazed youngster T-shirt as we <laughs> hey. speak. So, so I, I shouldn't cast the first stone, possibly. 
<laughs> a few other visual observations before we get to the main one, which I know you're dying to talk <laughs> about. Um, the the guitarist, um, I'm not sure if it's Paul Quinn or Graham Oliver, because they are two mm. guitarists, but one of them's playing a, a Gibson Flying V. Of yes. course he is, because mm. that was the fucking of metal guitar was, at yes. that time. And he's wearing tiger print leggings. Mm. And again, I can't laugh because I've got those exact leggings. <laughs> so basically, I am a member of Saxon. Um, and then you've got Biff at the back. And it's like it's like a school photo where the tall kids get sent to the back of the row. You know what yeah. I mean? But this song, Chaps, I was absolutely shocked to discover that they're singing about a car instead of a motorbike. Yeah. It's Grease Lightning for Grebos, isn't it? Yeah. And it's forced me into comparing and contrasting with the other big car song of the Aventis, You Need Wheels by the Merton Parkers. So <laughs> what we know about Saxon's car is uh, it's a 68 Chevy with pipes on the side. Yeah, right. In Barnsley. It runs on aviation fuel. It goes up to 140 miles an hour and more. Mm. It's capable of blowing away a Trans Am from a standing start. Uh, it helps Biff Bifford slash Byford take no jive from the motorway pigs <laughs> and has wheels of steel, which is a bit fucking thick, really, because you can just imagine all the sparks flying up and people going, oh, fucking hell, here's Saxon again. He's talking about his rims, man. This is proto-hip-hop. Yeah, because to me, to me, wheels of steel is always Grandmaster Flash and the wheels of, of steel. But don't, you know what I mean? Don't forget that on the album Wheels of Steel, there is a song called Motorcycle Man. So they do have yes. the biker angle. Oh, covered. yes. Oh, yes. We'll get to that in a minute, Neil. But the Merton Parker's car, mm. it's a low-slung sports car finished in red. It's guaranteed 100 miles from nothing dead. It's got heated windscreens front and rear. All the latest things, it even pours you a beer. <laughs> There's a seven-band radio stereogram. There's only one previous owner, but he was a stuntman. <laughs> Value five hundred pound now, and the rest next week. What? What? Which one of those two is appealing to you, chaps? Well, to be honest with you, both of those descriptions. Um, as a dad and a buyer of cars in my past, <laughs> well, you know, where's the talk about reliability, affordability yeah. of parts? What's the mileage here? You know, mm. what both of those songs are lacking is you know it ain't no shit you'll be getting lots of tit yes <laughs> <laughs> you know that i ain't bragging it's a real pussy wagon <laughs> yeah it's, it's funny you mentioned that you assumed wheels of steel was about a motorbike yeah. because i assumed you need wheels by merton parkers was about a lambretta exactly which, you know a 68 chevy with pipes on the side what on the a62a yes <laughs> i don't believe you yeah. Biff. i don't believe you but yeah uh, they, they were obsessed with the biker thing because as well as that track you mentioned from the same album on the first Saxon album there's a track called Stallions of the Highway (laughs) (laughs) which is about being a biker so yeah he's kind of upgraded I suppose from two wheels to four I mean Saxon at the the moment they do have an American car that they go about on tour with I like the KLS yes yeah but it's it's an Oldsmobile 99 yeah what a shame it wasn't a 98 Oldsmobile they could have combined with Public Enemy (laughs) bring the noise with Public Enemy and Saxon yeah yeah. would have been miles better than fucking Anthrax I hate that song. <laughs> I love it. But I mean, the thing is with this song, you can tell immediately this isn't the Wobbaham. You can immediately yes. tell the difference between this and those dinosaurs that we've already seen, like like Coverdale and White. Yes. Saxon had a few rules when they were starting up that, that Bifford used to talk about. No covers. That was an important one for them. And no jamming. 
Right. Um, mm. he, you know, he said in an interview that we want everything to build to a crescendo mm. all the time. By the way, in the same interview from Sounds in 79, the bassist Steve says, at the end of most gigs, I want to throw my arms wide and say to the audience, I love you. Thanks for letting me play. I'd open my bowels for them. Oh. Um, and the wobble and pants care. his bowels I mean, on them, yeah. Yeah, I mean, partly here, you could say that that kind of no covers, no jamming policy that's kind of slightly the influence of punk, but I actually think the influence here massively, as we see a lot in the Wobbum, is ACDC. Mm. There's a lot of ACDC alikes around in this period, from Saxon themselves to, as you mentioned, our, uh, the Swiss band Crocus. Yes. <laughs> Crocus, fucking hell. Um, Long Stick Go Boom by Crocus is one of the best ACDC sort of rip-offs ever. Right. But Crocus, fuck it, because they did a song called Smelly Nelly, which is... <laughs> Which is literally, honestly, I'm not, uh, you know, just Google the lyrics. Don't listen Video to Video playlist, everyone. It's one of the most <laughs> unpleasant songs ever. Um, it's horrible, hateful song. <laughs> but anyway, you get that mix of ACDC, also a bit of a bit of glam rock, the northernness that we've mentioned. Mm. They're, they're not po-faced. No. Or pretty, to be honest with you. No. <laughs> you know, and, and they're, they're like a lot of these bands, they're having a laugh yeah. at the moment. Paul Quinn, the guitarist, is uh, just late 79. He's got his cock and balls out on stage at the Sunderland Locarno, and the bouncer puts an axe through their back line. Um, <laughs> you know, the guitarist Paul Quinn, at this point, has one of those rotating things to spin his guitar. Yes. You know, and, oh, and, yeah. And he often smacks himself in the mouth. And like Simon said, yeah, Paul Quinn, I think it is Paul Quinn who's got the, 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 the leopard print spandex on. Mm. In this performance, I particularly like the fact that most people's legs are wide apart. Yes. Um, but, but Quinn doesn't. He has to, he kind of stepped. It reminds me massively of uh, once I was told, I was watching Metallica live and I was told by their press officer, you've got to go behind the stage to watch him because when you watch what Lars Ulrich's doing, it's amazing, right? Mm. So I'm, I'm, I was standing backstage watching him doing his double kick drum stuff and immediately the only thing I could think of was, you know, you know whenever Sooty ran... <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you know what I mean? Whenever Sooty or Sweet ran yes. and you saw their sort of little paws, yes. it was exactly like that. And that's what Paul Quinn's doing on this appearance. <laughs> but there's a lot of alikeness, if you like, in, in some metal bands. I mean, the drummer you mentioned with the Saxon T-shirt on looks uncannily like Phil Taylor out of Motorhead, mm. I think. And, and mm. he's chewing gum, clearly, because he's nervous. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah. There's a lot of ACDC-ness here. Yeah. But this is an amazing year for Saxon. Yes. I mean, the first band, really the first Wobbleham band, I think, that got signed. And it is odd that they get signed to that particular label, who were really... A disco label. Yeah, exactly. Mm. More of a sort of Italo disco label. Um, famously, you know, when Saxon go over to sign for Carrera, it's that classic thing that, that they get on a train at Doncaster... They go down to London, they're given 80 quid each to buy clothes. They, they, you know, they hair around uh, Carnaby Street, tighten themselves up. Then they go to oh, Paris. They get some jump shoes. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, wherever, wherever, they, wherever metal wear was, was available at that time. And, and then they go over to Paris, they sign the deal. They're leaning on a big glass table oh, no. in the penthouse office of this very, very, you know, moneyed up record company. And one of them leans on it too far and it smashes into pieces, <laughs> into a thousand pieces. They're, they're mortified and they head back home. But it's an amazing year for them. Well, put it this way, Neil. Saxon's first gig of 1980, 
the Assembly mm. Hall of Oakham High School in Mansfield, one pound yeah, to get yeah. in. Their last gig of nineteen eighty, headlining at Hammersmith Odeon, three pound twenty five a ticket. A meteoric rise. Mm. Indeed, and yeah, absolutely. And this is the year where of course they're on the bill at the inaugural Monsters of yes, Rock Festival. Right. Hosted at Castle Donington on August the sixteenth with alongside Judas Priest and Scorpions mm. and headliners Rainbow. You know, so so this is a huge year for them, a big year for them, and and it's mental because Wheels of Steel, with as we've mentioned, not that much radio support or anything else, it does sell two hundred fifty thousand copies. Yeah, it's all happening for them this year. Yes, it's all right yeah. this song, but it's no seven forty seven Strangers in the Night, no. is it? Because that no. right, so that's that's a true story about a potential plane crash, and you can't get any more metal than that. No, and that's got an amazing <laughs> riff, and it's got real excitement and drama to it. You know. Mm. This is Scandinavia 101. For God's sake, get the ground lights on and all that. I fucking love it. But but Wheels of Steel, it's a bit sort of one note and plodding, but it's all right. Mm. But the most yeah. alarming thing about Wheels of Steel is the artwork. Have you seen it? No. It's a no. massive Nazi eagle clutching oh, a wheel course, instead yes. of a swastika. Oh, yes. <clears throat> It's like, oh, it's complete, like, it's, it's not just by chance. It's not any old eagle. It's definitely no. that Nazi eagle. Any, any, uh, any old eagle. Yeah. It's fucking Iron Eagle, yeah. Yes. Yeah, but it's it's well, a clutching or, or, or steel, yeah, uh, instead of a swastika. Yeah, but that was, their, that was their motif all the way through, wasn't it? Because Strong Arm of the Law had that eagle holding a police badge. Right. Well, yeah. yeah. Fucking hell. There is that dangerous congruity between these kind of bands and Nazi imagery, yeah, yeah. to be Which honest. We'll I mean, as we see, we're yeah. exactly, indeed. I would have completely ignored this or sulked at it or tuttered as, you know, I was a mm. mod man. I'm, I'm not giving metal any fucking house room in it. It wasn't until 1986 that I allowed metal in my life through the medium of hip-hop when I listened to Raising Hell and uh, License Mm. to Well. I mean, I remember one time at college, around about 1988 or something like that, I got into a huge argument with chart music luminary Mad Phil. Uh, the Rush mm. obsessive that I mentioned earlier. And, you know, he was going, oh, hip-hop shit. What you fucking, what you listening to that for? And I said, what are you listening to fucking metal for? And Rush and all this shit. And he demanded to listen to what I had on at my Walkman. And I played it, and it was by all means necessary by Boogie Down Productions. Second right. track, you slip in, and it comes on, and he just looks at me, and he's just said... That's fucking smoke on the water, you thick cunt. And I had no idea. <laughs> and in order to make this musical exchange, your bedrooms were next to each other and you smashed through the wall with a microphone yes. stand. <laughs> <laughs> Do we address the elephant in the room now? Yeah, come on. Let's have it. All right. I mean, it's the bassist, isn't it? We've got to talk about yes. the bassist. Steve oh, Dawson, right, yeah. Uh, yeah. the Trevor Boulder of Nawabum. You can't take your eyes off him. No, but you, you can't. But you want you to. Can't. You want to take your eyes off him, but you can't. He looks like Paul Rutherford's dad, doesn't he? Yes, it's incredible. His look is quite summing. Or Freddie Mercury, sapped of all self-belief. Okay. I mean, look, me and Simon, we we got no reason. So, but he's a, he's got a right slap head on him, hasn't he? He's balding, in, yeah. In a, in a genre which prizes hair above most other things. Mm. Yeah, so he's balding, mm. but he's compensating... With the massive moustache. Yes. And he's got, yeah, he's got the spandex leggings. He's got white daps on. And he's got a black yeah. leather jacket over a bare chest. He looks and- like a politician visiting a farm or something, doesn't he? With <laughs> a, like fucking booty things on. <laughs> and of course, he's got his legs very wide apart. But the thing that I found unsettling. Very wide apart. What I found unsettling is his hips rocking metronomically <laughs> from side to side. It makes me feel a bit wrong. It's, it's too sexual. Fair play to him. While the less light 
tiny members of Whitesnake were covering their hairless shame with bucket hats and cowboy accoutrements. Steve Dawson doesn't give a fuck, does he? And I don't know what either of you are on about. I think he looks fucking great. But I I think that is partly down to the short hair thing. I think that's partly down to um, Rob Halford from Judas Priest. Yeah. Yes. When, when Rob Halford did that, that was quite a big move. It kicked and what open you the see, door, didn't it? Yeah. And what you see in subsequent years is, yeah, um, Saxon guy. You also see, I don't know, I'm thinking of a band like Accept, one of the worst of all German metal bands. Uh, <laughs> Balls to the Wall. Oh, you've got to get that video on the playlist as well. Yeah, I mean, they, they have a really sort of, you know, a singer who you expect to come out with a massive peroxide perm. And yeah, mm. closely cropped. I think it was a thing that Certainly, front men started doing. Here, we've got the bassist doing it. But yeah, there was the ball um, guy in Gillen as well. What did he play? Was he guitarist? But he was amazing as well. Ball guy was um, silk with mirror sunglasses. Oh, um, mm. who played with John Decan on "Don't Be a Dummy"? Oh, did he? Yes. Right. Apparently, Harry Shearer acknowledged uh, Steve Dawson from Saxon as the inspiration for Derek Small's in Spinal yeah. Tap. Yes, um, yeah, projecting yeah. strength. Yeah, um, <laughs> pointing at the audience and all that malarkey, as Dawson put it. Um, there's this quote from Dawson where he's actually quite magnanimous about the whole thing. He goes, Harry's lovely. I'm proud to be an influence on Spinal Tap. They're taking the piss, but that's part of the game, isn't it? So fair play to him. Um, I, yeah. I also think Frankie Poulain of the Darkness owes a little bit to Steve Dawson's whole vibe, by the way. Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I mean, it's interesting, that Harry Shearer kind of connection, because it captures this time where these bands like Saxon Maiden, etc., they are having such a big impact on the other side of the pond, mm. um, perhaps more so than here. Mm. I mean, it captures a time, I think, just before American bands took on the Wobbaham and repackaged it and basically did it bigger... I'm thinking of bands like Motley Crue and Metallica. That, that They all say that they're massively influenced by Saxon. Hmm. Um, whereas these bands kind of, they just happen in the UK and they don't really lead anywhere because hmm. what's going to happen next in UK metal is a more deathly, kind of darker, thrashy yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but, but in America, these bands are hugely important um, uh, to people like Lars Ulrich and, and people like Tommy Lee and, and, and people like that hmm. in showing them that these hints and getting a chart. Yeah. You know, this is the thing. They're signed, Saxon, not because I think Korea want to, you know, get on top of uh, some new wave of British heavy metal. It's because they've got chart potential. If you, if you listen to a track like I don't know, big teaser, it's like power pop. Yeah, it, it's you know. So in that article from Music Week, the bloke from Korea Records said they were signed simply to um, be a German chart act. They didn't expect any right. chart success in the UK, so it, it's a bonus for us. That's them. interesting because Career is the label of Dollar and Sheila and B Devotion. That's right. So, yeah, yes. Saxons sit very strangely on that, don't they? Mm. And crucially, they're not pompous or po-faced about this. And Bif- uh, Byford slash Bifford is asked, you know, about their look. He says, yeah, we wear tight pants. Why not? The tighter, the better, I say. <laughs> that appeals to the female part of the audience anyway. You can't ignore them, can you? <laughs> oh, yes. He then says, blokes in the audience couldn't give two fucks whether you wear any fucking pants and your bollocks are just swinging <laughs> <up>. <laughs> I mean, I beg to differ, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, well, quite. But there's a very telling quote in that interview, which is, is also from Sounds, actually, later on this year, where he says, I think heavy metal and heavy rock in general, this is Biff still, he says, it's the new circus. You don't put sea lions on stage, but you are an entertainer like a vaudeville entertainer. Mm. And that's kind of where they see themselves. And, and they're certainly, perhaps in this episode, the most interesting thing to look at so far. Mm. 
Before we turn away from Saxon chaps, let's not assume that they're turning their backs on the standard metal mode of transport in 1980. Article from the Pop Talk column in the Aberdeen Evening Express a few months from now. Join the Saxon search for the best biker. Nearly everyone has something to say about motorcyclists, and it's invariably uncomplimentary. Although bikers would be the first to admit there are some in their midst who are black sheep, in general they would say that as people go, they're not that bad. And it's something that the heavy metal band Saxon would like to prove is true. They want to clear the bikers' names. They are concerned about the poor image of bikers and are offering a special Saxon crash helmet for the person who can best show the better side of bikers. With the help of Radio Aberdeen DJ Jeff Jones, we are running a contest to put a stop to the slagger biker syndrome. (laughs) Jeff has already announced the contest on his show and asked listeners to put their heads together. The special prize of that Saxon helmet goes to the biker who can fit that bill and the winner will be presented with his or her helmet at a special heavy metal disco you know I've already got a Judy Zook satin tour jacket (laughs) I now want a Saxon motorbike helmet (laughs) oh can you imagine that combination imagine the sex that would fall upon me the following week, Wheels of Steel stayed at number 20 and would remain its highest position. The follow-up, 747, Strangers in the Night, did even better, getting to number 13 in July, and they finished the year with their next LP, Strong Arm of the Law, getting to number 11. Diminishing returns set in in 1981, however, as Nawabam's star fell, but while they were on tour in America, they were joined for three days by someone they thought was a journalist who actually turned out to be Harry Shearer, Mm. who was doing some research for the forthcoming film Spinal Tap. Despite the band splintering in the late 90s and a legal battle between Biff Bifford and two former members trying to register the band name as a trademark, David Van Day Saxon, if you will, <laughs> they're still going today and are beginning a tour of the UK as we speak. Fucking hell, you can't kill Saxon, yeah, I mean, either of them. You, you do still see their name on um, on festival bills. And, and, mm. and because of that, you assume that they've kind of uh, been able to make a living throughout. But that's actually not the case. In, in the late 90s, uh, Biff actually had a job as a, as a furniture salesman in West Yorkshire. Fucking hell. Obviously, there have been ups and downs. They, they've uh, had various attempts at making a big comeback. And do you all know about the thing that happens at a football match? No. no. All right, all right. Uh, sit down, make yourselves comfortable. This is amazing. <laughs> this was um, in January 2007. Saxon were brought on as the halftime entertainment at Sheffield Wednesday versus Sunderland um, with Barney Owl, the mascot. And what it was, it wasn't just to play a song. They were trying to, and this was Harvey Goldsmith's idea, who was, I guess, their promoter at the time. Right. What they're trying to do was to break the world record for air guitar, for the most people playing right. air guitar at right. one moment. Um, the record at that point was 4,000 people Um, there was a crowd in the ground of 30,000 so they did the math and they thought well this should be fairly easy right Mm. but Harvey Goldsmith clearly didn't understand football fans because what happens is because the footage is out there on youtube stick it on the on a playlist of course um, 
what actually happens is one small child joins in with the air guitar in. <laughs> Everyone else is booing them, going, who are you? Who are oh, you? And no. You're absolutely rubbish. Oh, you're absolutely no. rubbish. While Biff and a couple of other members are out there on the pitch with their guitars, not plugged in, but with their real guitars, sort of like whittling away, trying to get the crowd air guitaring oh, with them. No. And it's not even one of their big songs that's playing over the uh, tannoy. I don't know what it is. And the, the clip finishes with Harvey Goldsmith um, leading the band back down the tunnel and and Biff saying that was the worst three minutes I've ever fucking spent in my life. (laughs) And in the tunnel Norris McWurter shakes his head and (laughs) puts away his stopwatch. He was undeterred though, you can't keep a good man down. Do you know this thing about in 2010 he tried to get heavy metal recognised as a religion on the census form. (laughs) It was some kind of um, collaboration with him and Metal Hammer magazine. Mm. Bless him. (laughs) I don't think he succeeded. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And their album, which is also called Wheels of Steel, is doing very well. And here's somebody who always do it well, Hot Chocolate. After some boards up where the camera fades on Saxon and is replaced by a still of Saxon at an extreme Dutch angle, we cut to Vance, surrounded by every black kid in the audience. Yeah. All five of them. <laughs> well, it is literally all the black kids, isn't it, in the crowd? Mm. Do you think that's deliberate? Oh, God, yeah. Do you yeah. think that's deliberate? No doubt about it, Neil. Yeah, I did wonder that. I don't get why they've done that at all it's it's odd mm. and it's noticeable he tells us that saxon's new lp is doing well in the charts then he introduces us to a band who always do it well hot chocolate and no doubt about it we last covered hot chocolate in chart music number 47 the last supper of show waddy waddy when they trotted out so you win again in the 1977 christmas day episode of top of the pops 
Since then, they scored a number 10 with Put Your Love In There on Christmas week of 1977, number 12 with Everyone's A Winner in April of 1978, and number 13 with I'll Put You Together Again in January 1979. But diminishing returns rapidly started to set in, with their next two singles, the appropriately titled Mindless Booger (laughs) and Going Through the Motions, failing to break the top 40. But then, in January of this year, the songwriters Steve Glenn and Mike Burns, two songwriters affiliated with Rack, Hot Chocolate's label, were on their way to a meeting at the Rack studio when they saw what they believed to be a flying saucer malingering over the Finchley Road in North London, which they followed for 90 minutes. When they finally got to the studio, they told a third songwriter, Dave Most, about what they'd seen, and he believed them as he claimed to have seen one too. They immediately set to work to report this phenomenon through the medium of pop, which was snapped up by Errol Brown and the Chaps, and was put out a fortnight ago as the follow-up to going through the motions, which got to number 53 in August of 1979. This week, it smashed into the chart at number 31, and here they are in the studio. And all Chaps, we get some proper spacey effects for this one, don't we? Yeah. (laughs) Some kind of white out thing at the beginning that that makes the kids look like a frothing ectomorphic mass yeah the weirdness of the song is accentuated by the production here indeed the top of the pots people they, they kind of yes. start off in negative in a way don't they yes they do yeah a bluey negative it's very otherworldly very otherworldly and, and it's a it's a kind of mental decision letting the whole weird alien intro of this song play before the groove comes in. I mean, it might have been more sensible to start the performance where the beats start, but we've got Mm. this weird floaty minute Mm. of just synth texture, really. And the kids just thinking, what the fuck is going on here? (laughs) Because it's an amazing song, this. Mm. I mean, it's possibly the weirdest, most futuristic thing we'll hear in this episode. Yes. Um, The verses sound like, I don't know, mid-period can or something. The lyrics are like this Sun Ra Afro-futurist stuff. Um, Mm. And then... The chorus lifts off into this almost northern soul place, but the love and the testifying is about an alien visitation. It's, mm. it's mental, this song. And it's perhaps the last of Hot Chocolate's weird hits, if you like. Yes. You know, it recovers the oddity of something like Emma. Mm. And yeah, the weirdness is completely accentuated by the Top of the Pops production mm. here. I mean, here's an example of a band who could not be any more 70s, looking around for a future in the harsh landscape of the Aventis. And on this showing, it looks like they're going to do quite nicely, thank you. Yeah, you're right. They've got those silky flared trousers and the sequin tops. And they can be forgiven for that. The 80s have only just barely started, and they maybe didn't get the memo. Mm. But yeah, they, they do look a little bit out of place. They do. But it doesn't matter. Errol's in this fucking amazing shirt that looks like there's a laser show going off on his chest and yeah. some incredibly yeah, shiny it, silver trousers. Mm. Yeah, this kind of black... It's almost like a blues on that he's tucked mm. in. It's got, it's got like this peacock sequin rhinestone pattern on the front. Yeah. And those trousers, man, those are trousers of the future. <laughs> They're amazing. I'm also quite enamoured with the basis powder blue velour yeah. trousers. They look like they're crafted out of the interior of a particularly jazzy Austin Maxi. <laughs> 
But you have to yeah. feel sorry for Errol here because, you know, here he is telling these youths about his close encounter. And, and instead of giving him the rapt attention he deserves, they're either gassing away to each other about lads and shoes or trying to chat each other up or turning away to see themselves on the monitor. So they never get to find out if he took a probe up his arse or something. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking kids, man. What's wrong with them? This audience is very sullen, isn't it? Very sullen, very naughty. Yeah. They need sending into the corridor with their fingers on their lips. Yes. I think at the time, I didn't realise that Hot Chocolate didn't write all their own songs. So mm. I, I thought this mm. was literally Errol Brown out of Hot Chocolate telling us, the kids, that he'd had an alien visitation. Yeah. It's like when David thought that um, Terry Jacks had a terminal illness. <laughs> In 1974, and the minute that uh, Seasons in the Sun stopped being number one, he would die. Yeah, exactly. I took it very literally, and mm. I wanted to believe, because I'd Ooh. had a UFO experience myself as a child. Ooh. Um, only a couple of years before this. Right. It would have been about 1978, I was playing football in the street with the aforementioned Andrew. In those days, of course, these real sort of jumpers for goalposts stuff, mm. almost literally, it was, it was lampposts for goalposts. You know, you, you would play until it got dark. In fact, beyond it getting dark, because there weren't many cars around. Mm-hmm. So one of us booted the ball off down the road, and I remember running after it and just getting the ball, looking up over the Bristol Channel, and we both saw this red and white sphere um, revolving and moving erratically in a way that just didn't seem mm-hmm. normal for a plane yeah. or a helicopter or anything like that. And uh, it was really odd, and we, we yeah. both saw it. And the next day we went into school, and we made the mistake uh, in uh, Romley Juniors of telling a teacher about it oh. and the teacher said oh tell me more and we, we mm. told them everything and uh, this was uh, sort of you know registration or whatever and then um, when it came to assembly we're all sat there cross-legged oh, no. on the floor and um, the headmaster said I hear that Simon oh, Price no. and Andrew Rupusis <laughs> have got something they want to tell you oh, fucking hell. they made us get up and tell a story but they completely cunted us off and mugged us off and made fun of us for it and I just felt so humiliated right and I, I only felt slightly vindicated that evening when I got home and put on um, the local news uh, show which was called Points West because our TV aerial pointed west rather than to Mm. Wales and there was actually a policeman from Somerset um, which is pretty much the direction we were looking at who said he'd seen the same thing it was a news story in in the west country that there had been this red and white thing hovering over there and i thought fucking hell you know i'm not saying you can always trust a, a policeman a cab and all that or scab <laughs> as i prefer to say some cops are bastards um but but yeah um if if only uh, our head teacher had seen this fucking policeman he might have believed mm. us it really pissed me off but yeah, yeah. and then your headmaster went back to his study and, and took his mask off and revealed his lizard himself and had a good laugh to himself yeah he sort of wiggled his 30 foot tongue about gotta ask someone were you frightened were you scared were you thrown into confusion no doubt about it like it was from other skies that's for sure mm. yeah english skies that's amazing simon i i believe and i want to believe in ufos i really want to see one so i'm always delighted to hear testimony from somebody who really has. I, I think um as soon as you start talking about this people immediately start curling their lip because they think that you're stupid and they think that mm. what you're saying is i believe that aliens have visited the earth because it's not that i think you've got to separate the two things mm. you've really got to separate the two things first of all ufos 
UFO literally means unidentified flying object. Um, although these days you, they've they've rebranded it as UAP, haven't they? It's a unidentified aerial phenomena. That's what NASA call it now, or the Pentagon. All oh, right. So, so there's that. UFOs literally unidentified flying objects. Obviously, that happens all the time. Mm. If you see something in the sky and you can't identify it, it's to you at least a UFO. Yeah. And then there's the separate issue of alien life. Now, mathematically, it is as near to a certainty as you can get that there is life on other planets. Mm. But it's also almost as certain that those planets are so fucking far away that it is literally impossible for those uh, beings to make it here. Mm. So I don't combine the two. Mm. I don't think that if you see a UFO, it means, you know, close encounters of the third kind, yeah. which, of course, was very recent when this record came out. Yeah, yeah. So that, that would have been in everybody's mind. Indeed. And I think even if it is experimental aircraft or unusual meteorological phenomena, that to me yeah, is yeah. interesting. Yeah, I want to know. That's fascinating. Oh, it's worth writing a song about it. Defo. And actually, Wales, in particular South Wales, is a bit of a UFO hotspot. Is that right? right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I only seek the most unimpeachable sources, as, as you're well aware. Um, uh, and Craig Charles's recent UFO conspiracy <laughs> se- series on Sky History talks about an event in the, in the village of Pentrick, South Wales. Uh, right. and interestingly enough, uh, listening to your description, Simon, it did talk this episode about what people see is this vast triangular UFO appearing in the night sky. But... It ejects smaller red and green craft mm. from its from its thing. So um, yeah, no, it's a bit of a hotspot around there. Yeah, I love the film Close Encounters. By the way, I was almost quite partisan about that. It, I thought you were either a Close Encounters kid or a Star Wars kid. Oh, I'm definitely and a Close I, Encounters I, kid. Yeah, I, I thought Star Wars was for cretins. I really did. I'm sorry, and <laughs> and I thought Close Encounters was for the for the cleverer kids. Mm. I love that film. Mm. There's so much going on in there. I mean, it, it's it, it gives plenty to an adult view as well. It's not just a kids' film. Just the guy having a mental breakdown about it, and and uh, the whole conspiracy theory mm. business, and the domestic situation where he's creating that that mountain first of all out of mashed potato on his plate and then later on out of just mud and junk and crap in his in his garage mm. i think my favorite bit was um there's some guy who's um uh, he's, he's driving at night and he's stuck at, uh, at a level crossing and there's somebody tailgating him there's, there's these bright lights behind him in his rear view mirror and he's like okay pal you know and then suddenly these lights just lift up and go over yeah, him yeah. I love that bit it's Richard Dreyfus isn't yeah, it? yeah yeah it's, it's, I mean the thing is though obsessed with UFOs as I probably was in 1980 I'm not sure I'd have noticed that this song was about UFOs because I had this bad habit of not listening to verses or at least not noticing the lyrics and by the time it gets to the chorus this hot chocolate song it could be a love song yeah yeah that's because he puts it over so well doesn't he yeah yeah completely the, the verses are quite low-key sings and quite sort of sotto voce so that if you're not listening carefully by the time he gets to the chorus it could absolutely be a love song and it's credit mm-hmm. to errol that he's able to put it over with so much emotion i suppose it's like a sort of visitation of, of the virgin mary that, that a, a catholic believer might have you know mm. he just puts that kind of passion into it of, no no this really happened mm-hmm. yeah um even though it didn't happen to him it happened to someone else anything else to say about this i think that they they did do some great stuff in what is seen as maybe not their golden period you mentioned Mm. i'll put you together again which i thought was a beautiful song a kind of gospel tinged ballad 
and even some of their other 80s stuff like Girl Crazy and Are You Getting Enough? And of course it started with a kiss. You don't remember me, do you? <laughs> and all of that. Just really great singles. And didn't they hold some kind of record, some chart record at the time? The band who'd been in the top 40 for the most consecutive years or something like that. Yes. Uh, which which I loved yeah. and really deserved, I thought. Yeah. So the following week, no doubt about it, soared 22 places to number nine and a fortnight later it began a three-week stand at number two held off the summit of pop mountain which had been sculpted out of mashed potato by Roy <laughs> Neary, no doubt, by a tune we're going to hear later on and theme from mash suicide is painless the follow-up are you getting enough of what makes you happy got to number 17 in august of this year and they'd have three more top 10 hits throughout the early 80s before splitting up in 1986 Before Errol and his mates get to finish their tale of extraterrestrial mither, the whiteout effects kick in again, the camera dollies back, then pans right to the stage at the other end of the studio, and the effects fade away to reveal the dingy reality of 1980 and Motorhead with Leaving Here. Born in Stoke-on-Trent in 1945, Ian Kilmister was relocated to Newcastle-under-Lyme and then the Isle of Anglesey after his parents' divorce and picked up the nickname of Lemme, allegedly due to him going up to people and saying, Lemme a quid until Friday at school. After knocking about in a sort of bands in Wales, he moved to Manchester in the early 60s, put himself about on the northwest beat combo scene and regularly saw the Beatles at the Cavern, including one gig where John Lennon went out into the audience and headbutted someone for calling him a queer. <laughs> After playing guitar for the Motown sect in 1962, he joined the Rockin' Vickers in 1965 and stayed there for three years before moving to London, flat-sharing with Noel Redding of the Jimi Hendrix Experience, becoming their roadie while he looked for another band, but stints with Sam Gapol's dream and Opal Butterfly didn't last long. However... In 1971, he was recruited by Michael Dick McDavis in his band Hawkwind as a bass player, even though he'd never played the instrument before. Davis just wanted another band member who was into their amphetamine. A year later, Kilminster found himself singing on an overdub of a live recording of their single Silver Machine, which got to number three for two weeks in August of 1972. In May of 1975, during a tour of North America, the band was stopped at the Canadian border where Kilmister's stash of amphetamine was found. The police assumed it was cocaine and arrested him, although he was released without charge the next day. This was the impetus the rest of the band needed to knob him off and he was fired when they got back to the UK. 
Kilmister immediately set to work putting together a band in his own image and he recruited Larry Wallace, formerly of the Pink Fairies, and his mate Lucas Fox, forming the band Bastard, (laughs) which was quickly changed to Motorhead when their new manager told them that a band called Bastard would never get a booking on top of the pops. (laughs) After Wallace and Fox were replaced by Fast Eddie Clark and Phil filthy animal taylor they signed to bronze records and put out their debut single a cover of leaving here the 1963 holland dozier holland song that eddie holland took to number 76 on the billboard charts and london r&b band the birds took to number 45 over here in june of 1965 motorhead's version fell to chart but their third single Motorhead got to number 68 in September of 1978 and thanks to some string pulling by label boss Jerry Braun, they found themselves on top of the pops, but the single dropped straight out of the chart the week after. They're currently spending 1980 finding themselves as the elder statesman of Nawabham, have just finished a UK tour supported by Saxon and put out the Golden Years EP, a collection of early period tunes recorded live as the follow-up to Bomber, which got to number 34 in December of 1979. It came out last week and instantly dive-bombed into the charts at number 23, and here they are in the studio to play the first cut on that EP, their first ever single, Leaving Here. And chaps, it's very telling that Motorhead got their name because they wanted to be on Top of the Pops. (laughs) And it's also pretty obvious that Top of the Pops are very happy to have a band like Motorhead on because this is their fourth appearance now and it's only mid-1980. Wow. Mm. I've got no memory of this, you know, whatsoever. Um, no. I guess, obviously, I wasn't watching a lot of Top of the Pops at the time, but mm. uh, even though, yeah, this this EP, the Gold News EP, apparently reached number eight. Um, mm. I think the first I really knew of Motorhead was Ace of Spades, of course. Yes. And this is a really surprising record, in a lot of mm. ways. I mean, as you say, 1963 single by Eddie Holland, written by Holland, Dozier Holland, not a hit in the UK in its original form. Nope. So in Motown terms, this is a deep cut, you know? Yes. I mean, yeah, I'm not saying so. I can imagine Lemmy doing spins and drops at the Wigan Casino, <laughs> you know? And let's face it, if he's shaking out the white powder, it's not going to be talcum, right? <laughs> but you need to know your soul music to even have heard of this, the original anyway. Mm. Well, it was one of those standards that British R&B bands played. Yeah. Also, I mean, Lemmy's trying to align himself a little bit here, I think, with with kind of the Ramones and things like that, that that touching back Mm. into 60s pop. But I think he's majorly heavily influenced in this choice of song by the Birds version. Yeah. You know, pre-Ronnie Wood, they did get Ronnie Wood in their ranks eventually. But when you listen to the Mm. Birds version, it's actually quite similar to the Motorhead version in a way that the Motown version isn't. Mm. And isn't it funny how the metal bands are 90 appear to be more influenced by 60s R&B than the mod bands of the time. Yeah. I mean, David Coverdale, he was an old soul lad, wasn't he? Well, I mean, don't forget the, the, the crazy thing. I mean, Phil Filthy Taylor was a skinhead right. way back in the day. Um, it, it actually actually became a skinhead late 60s, early 70s uh, due to a haircutting accident, you know, from his girlfriend. <laughs> but really? he stuck with it and he used to go to Blue Beat clubs and he used to go to Scar clubs. So there is that connection there. Yeah. Wow. I mean, nobody's born a metaler and Nawabam, in fact, metal itself was still a sort of fairly new genre. Mm. So obviously everybody involved in it is going to have a backstory. Mm. Yeah. They're going to have things that they were into when they were young. And 
the birds, as in birds spelt with an I, version is the the thing that leads to Lemmy covering this. Um, he was a fan of theirs and and supported them once. But I think the telltale thing is something you said in the intro, Al, that he was in a band called the Motown yeah, Set, yeah, yeah. you know, doing Motown covers. And Motorhead had previous, I suppose, for this kind of thing. Obviously, leaving here. Uh, in its studio form was their debut single mm. but the first uh, motorhead record i actually own was a blue flexi disc from flexi pop magazine right. um following year 1981 of the train kept to rolling right. right which was the final track on their debut album back in 77 mm. and the train kept to rolling was um originally a, a jump blues track from 1951 by tiny bradshaw mm. but in that case there is at least a fairly easy pathway to it becoming a motorhead song because that had previously been covered by by the Yardbirds, yeah. Led Zeppelin and Aerosmith. Mm. So basically it was a bit of a rock chestnut by mm. that point. Yeah. But leaving here, even though, yeah, you know, 60s beat groups like the Birds might have had it in the repertoire, it feels like it's coming way out of left field to find itself in Motorhead's set. Mm. And um, it's, there's something really pleasing about it, I yeah. think, that, you know, this, this, this band seemed like the least likely Motown cover band <laughs> in the world. But yeah. I mean, I think it is that it's crucial that looking back with those sort of elderly statesmen of Irvin the Wobbaham, as, as I'll refer to them, what Motorhead are engaged in always, I think, I mean, like ACDC, it's an attempt to take rock away from its pompous ambitions and return it to this thing of mm. a, a, a fiftieth thing, really, of simplicity and noise and adrenaline and I, and I think with motorhead that even extends to how many members they have having just three members is a statement mm. power trio yes i mean lemmy said the reason it was three because there was no room for anyone else and what he means by that isn't you know room on stage he means sonically there's no room he's got his bass so overdriven constantly that it's this perfectly locked in mm-hmm. wall of noise and as such i mean much like acdc motorhead of this band that are going to be loved by punks and metal kids alike but but like acdc they kind of don't fit into either i mean later on in the 80s lemmy becomes very very good at slagging off metal bands you know every time he's interviewed i mean i I read an interview where he said i'd rather be sealed in a pit of my own excrement than listen to metal and uh, he he watched napalm (laughs) death on a documentary and he says it was like talking to two skirting boards (laughs) people think we listen to anthrax when i'm at home i listen to the carpenters you know so he's very much kind of although in the wobbaham figurehead he's he, he disowns it almost completely yeah yeah i agree with neil that um motorhead are one of the base elements mm. of rock and roll, they are like ACDC, they are like the Ramones, they are irreducible. Yeah. You can't break Motorhead down into its component parts. They are the component part. Yeah. And the thing with bands like that is there's usually no point in buying anything past the yeah, first yeah. four or five albums because once they perfected their thing, there's nowhere to go. So basically when Motorhead released Ace of Spades, mm. that's it, mm. they were done really mm. but oh by the way uh, there's been a lot of talk about the young ones yeah, recently yeah. Yes. with um, the 40th anniversary fuck me 40 years I know. Jesus I know. Um, and the greatest musical moment of the show obviously I'm sure we all agree all <laughs> civilised people agree totally. it is Motorhead totally. doing Ace yeah. of Spades for those who haven't seen it it's in the episode called Bambi uh, it's when the four students are rushing off to get the train to represent Scumbag mm. College yeah. in University Challenge and it is amazing but yeah Motorhead stood 
implacably opposed to the idea of progression, mm. which is funny because you could say that Hawkwind were kind of a progressive rock band, but uh, Motorhead weren't going to change and mutate. They were not. No one's going to call Motorhead the chameleons of rock. You know what I mean? <laughs> they weren't going to go soft and release a ballad, you know, unless, I mean, Neil, you may know better than me. I don't think they ever released a ballad. No, no, um, they never did a ballad. No. Does his duet with Wendy O. Williams stand by your man? Does that count? <laughs> Not quite. No. Well, no. I mean, even the yeah, even the Motorhead and Girls School duets don't. No, absolutely no, not. No, 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 um, yeah. They they weren't going to bring hip hop into their sound. Although they they did do a single with Ice T at one point. But Motorhead were Motorhead. That was it. You cannot yeah, break yeah. them down. And no matter how many records they released, they existed mainly as a live band. If if you went to see them live, mm. which you know I I did a number of times. I don't know about you guys, but mm-hmm. you you knew exactly what you were going to get. There's no fucking around. Yeah, and yeah, that's yeah, where yeah. they were in their element. And maybe. That's why records like this keep coming out. They kept releasing live records. This EP, it's all live tracks recorded on, I believe, the same European tour as some of the No Sleep Till Hammersmith album. Mm. That album, by the way, went to number one, which I, I, I still think is a really startling feat for yeah. an uncompromising, fast, thrashy metal band. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you know how many live albums Motorhead released, by the way? No, I don't, actually. 16. Fucking hell. Motorhead released 16 Jesus. live albums. They only released 22 studio albums. Fuck. They loved a fucking live album, Motorhead. Yeah, they were never about studio craft. Mm. They saw the studio in, in a weird way, like the 40s and 50s people mm. did. It's a mm. snapshot of what yeah. we do like. And yeah. obviously his voice... It's like filth. It actually sounds like engine oil that's been there for months and it's full of grit and dirt. And it's bass tone, that overdriven tone that you mentioned is fucking thrilling, isn't it? Yeah. So I know we've had some hard rock and some metal already, but this is a real blast of adrenaline, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's funny that you mentioned the young ones, actually, because... Alexi Sale used to have a motorhead joke that he used to do live. I went to a motorhead concert once. Someone shouted out sexist crap and they thought it was a request. <laughs> but, but in actual fact, I mean, oddly enough, like ACDC, they're a strangely female positive band um, motorhead. Mm. When Lemmy lends support to the wonderful girls' school, I have to say, I love mm. Hit and Run and singles like that. Mm. You know, it's genuine, even though it becomes to be an albatross for girls' school. And when you listen to, I mean, their finest album, I think, um, aside from the last ones is probably overkill it's just such a fucking amazing record that and when you listen to a track like i'll be your sister they're genuinely odd lyrically and sexually now, lemmy never does that i'm gonna put it inside your thing no yeah, he's not coverdale yeah no he's not coverdale leaving here this this track it's not one of their greatest i don't think it's, it, it, it isn't off one of their greatest records it's no ace of spades or iron fist but we do massively get a sense of how thrilling Motorhead must be live here. And for me, you know, as a very young kid at this time, no chance of actually seeing Motorhead. This appearance is amazing. Yeah. Everything's in place. Phil Taylor, like this kind of naughty schoolboy, <laughs> always a frenzy, always lunatic fast, but he's always got that kind of tis was friendly grin on his face. Mm. I'm amazed he got that T-shirt past the censors. Yes. <laughs> well, he's got a T-shirt that says whale oil beef hooked yes he has um, yeah i can't believe that went unnoticed i know it's the sort of thing you can imagine tommy saxondale's girlfriend selling in her shop <laughs> you know, was, along with you know um i like the pope the pope smokes dope and all that kind of stuff it's one of those isn't it yeah but did you notice the actual swear word on that set no what on the speaker behind Lemme, there's a never mind the bollocks sticker. Oh. Yeah, yeah, Motorhead said bollocks on top of the pops. I mean, it's a rock and roll. I mean, Fast Eddie's exactly what you want from a guitar. God. Mm. Lemmy, 
Mike Angle down. He always said that he he did that so he could hit the high notes. I'm, mm. I'm unconvinced, but it's a good look. It's a good look. I think I'd have been scared by Lemmy as a kid if it wasn't <laughs> oh, totally. If it wasn't for Tiz was, but Tiz was a kind of made them not cuddly as such. Were they on there a lot then? I I didn't really watch Tiz was. I I seem to recall them being in that cage getting buckets right. thrown at them quite yeah. often. Yeah, but uh, I mean, crucially, any motorhead appearance on top of the pops. It really does feel here as if the metalheads have taken over the audience uh, uh, as well. Yeah. There's yes. some scary looking people <laughs> in this Those crowd. three guys down the front, fucking yeah. hell. <laughs> Actual headbangers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Three of them. They probably all got early onset dementia now, sadly. But yeah, yeah. Well, the problem with them lads is they're you know they're having a good go and they're introducing the new dance craze to the nation, mm. but their hair's not long enough. No. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not thrashing about enough. Is it? It's probably like collar length for school, isn't it? It's like being a wrestler. You, if you're a wrestler, mm. you're always told back in the day have your hair as long as possible because when someone pretends to hit you in the face and you jerk your head back, your hair's going to go right up and people at the back are going to see the impact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But like, um, you're asking if there are any metlers at my school and now I'm thinking about it. Yeah, there were, but they all had that kind of hairdo where it grew sideways and upwards, but not down because the teachers <laughs> would tell them it had yeah. to be like above the collar. Yeah. So they'd end up just looking like mushrooms, you know? Yeah. <laughs> But there are some scary looking... I mean, there's a guy just he's seemingly swigging from a can of lager. You've got this kind of mix of it, what looks like bikers and acid heads and headbangers. There's a little bit of Hawkwind's audience here, I think, as well. Who look as if they've been there since the last episode of Disco 2. <laughs> but it gives this performance... You know that thrill you occasionally get from Top of the Pops performance of our bands, whether that's indie or rock yeah. or just weird? Yeah. That, yes, the Top of the Pops production people are in control... But they're in control only in terms of allocating a space where this band can perform. Yes. In that space, the band are in control. Yeah. And, you know, we actually get that from a couple of the subsequent performances in this fantastic oh, yes. episode too. Oh, yes. That thrilling kind of rub between bands that are too exciting to be contained and the usual kind of diktats of the top of the pops space. Yeah. They're here to promote a live EP, Chaps, but is this a live performance? Who knows? Because the record's a bit of a mess. This is a bit of a mess. I was pretty convinced at the time that it was and i was up until like the other day when i looked at it again and i noticed that filthy animals got some pads on his drum head so so that leads me to believe that it's mimed so they're miming i mean are they miming to a live performance and is that a first on top of the pops it's a weird head fuck that isn't it i know miming to a live record which raises the question well if they are miming what are they miming to because it's not the track on the ep for obvious reasons and it's not the the original either so yeah a mystery mm. i mean like saxon they've got a wall of speakers set up which must have uh yeah. must have cheered up the fucking floor manager and the crew no end um to hump these fuckers about yeah and also there's this kind of scaffolding around them which separates them from the crowd but also makes them into this this crazy spectacle yeah because it, it's got a noise to it. It's got yeah. a noise to it that that doesn't seem, you know, doesn't doesn't seem. It's certainly not the top of pops orchestra. Yeah, <laughs> about those speaker cabinets, it's entirely possible that they were empty. Because yeah. uh, AC, mm. ACDC mm. were famous for that. They had these enormous kind of <laughs> Great Wall of China sized, you know, banks of of Marshall amps behind them. But apparently, they were all just uh, empty, quite lightweight wooden cabs. I don't know. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I do think that uh, filthy 
Animal Taylor is the most watchable member of the band. Mm. I always like how he looked like a Mexican baddie from a Western. <laughs> yes. And I, I like how he had, he had a drum kit with shark's teeth in, in the front of it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Quite fun, I thought. Lemmy, though, right? <laughs> he does this thing. He, he's, there's obviously um, a woman in the front row who's caught his eye because mm. he crouches down and flickers his tongue lasciviously at yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's a bit unsettling. That. I mean, for all we know, she loved it. I don't know, but... Mm. Wow. <laughs> and he's like, did you, did you ever get a chance to speak to Lemmy, Simon? Oh, I met him at the Mojo Awards once, but what do you say to Lemmy? He's just fucking Lemmy. I, I just mm. thought, I've, yeah, I, you I, know, I can't. Yeah, yeah. You're right. I, I, if, if I'd known I was going to meet him, I might have thought of something, but no, I, I had nothing. How about you? I, I chatted with him on the phone once. Um, it was for a Melody Maker special feature about Halloween, and I had to interview him about um, his haunted house experiences. <laughs> Um, not much of which I can remember, but yeah, I mean, basically, he told it, he spun a good yarn. Ugh. And it was just mental, you know, just hearing that voice mm. um, yeah. down the phone. There's nothing like a Halloween stew. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I never met him, but he used to go drinking in uh, the garage, the, the club I preferred going to in Nottingham in the late 80s. Right. It's not like he lived in Nottingham, but he'd just pitch up every now and then. Mm. And my mates would go, fucking hell, Lemmy's at the bar. And I'd be like, Oh, yeah, great. <laughs> and that's it. Because you're right. What can you say to him? Yeah. At this time, I would have been watching this with a curled lip and a, yeah, a yeah. sneer of disgust because I never got on with Motorhead at the time, possibly because of a resemblance between Lemme and someone I used to see every Saturday. I mean, we've, we've already talked about local characters. Hmm. Allow me to bring another one into play. Right. He was known uh, around Nottingham as Axeman. <laughs> <laughs> but that wasn't his real name. I knew his real name, and I always used to pull people up about it. Basically, he was this massive, sweaty grab who used to wear a headband and a cut-off denim jacket. He looked like a morbidly obese lemme, and he'd hang <laughs> around the badge stall of Pendulum Records and read out the slogans on the badges and scoff at the modern two-tone ones and, and just basically terrify us young sharp mm. mods and rude boys with his tales about how he was well in with the local Hells Angels and right. how he knocked over a line of scooters outside a pub the other night and, you know, him and his gang set fire to some parkers before he got a blowjob <laughs> on his motorbike while he's riding through town. And then he'd say, yeah, you've heard of me. My name's Machete Max. <laughs> Machete Max. And every every week, without fail, I'd run into this cunt. Mm. And he'd be there, standing at the store, going, oh, look at this one. Moddy's news, punk is history. Fuck off. And we'd just be standing there waiting for the event that happened every week, which was always a gang of older mods or skinheads who would just turn up and hover around him and stare him out, and he'd <laughs> make his excuses and leave. <laughs> he was still knocking about Nottingham until about 10 years ago mm. with a walking stick, looking absolutely fucking rattled as mm. fuck with the same headband on which had probably knitted into his flesh on his forehead fucking hell it's funny isn't it because like metal is a, a lot of it is about expressing male rage and male aggression and all that stuff mm. and it's about power fantasies and all that kind of business mm. um but you often find that the people who are into it first of all they're quite soft you know, mm. they, they, they might have, like, leather jackets and loads of studs and spikes, but they're actually, like, not very 
tough. Um, but yeah. also, you, you find that they're often really gentle souls. Not this guy, obviously, yes. but mm. you know, mm. yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure Neil can, you know, back that up. Yeah. Oh yeah, got my daughter. My daughter, for instance, I mean, she's immensely gentle, and yeah, yeah, covered in manowar style spikes. <laughs> yeah. On an almost constant basis. <laughs> and just to pick up on something you said earlier, Neil, about uh, Motorhead being strangely kind of female positive. Mm. Mm. Just choosing this song itself, um, the, the mm. lyrics to leaving here right first verse yeah. goes hey fellas have you heard the news yeah the women in this town have been misused yeah mm, i seen mm. it all in my dreams last night girls leaving this town because you don't treat them right right mm. <laughs> so basically um eddie holland is saying detroit is becoming the anti-nottingham so like you know if, if, if we buy into the myth of course that nottingham has this kind of massive excess of women to men which is bullshit nowadays yeah i know i know but basically, yeah, um, Detroit is becoming Doha, where apparently um, the, the population is 81% male because of all the transient workers. Of course, that, that yeah. figure itself um, fluctuates according to how many of them are dying in the construction mm. of sports washing arenas. Bit of politics yeah, there. Fuck the World Cup. Yeah. I'm about to ask this question. Did Lemmy get away with murder? Isn't he just Jeremy Clarkson with warts? I mean, as we all know, he's very keen on collecting Nazi memorabilia. And just like Father Seamus Fitzpatrick in Father Ted, he's not interested in the Allied things at yeah, all. Yeah, funny that, isn't it? Uh, in, in 2008, he was investigated by the German authorities after a photo of him wearing a cap with the SS Death Head logo appeared in a local newspaper. And when the subject cropped up in an interview, he said... I'll tell you something about history. From the beginning of time, the bad guys always had the best uniforms. Napoleon, the Confederates, the Nazis, they all had killer uniforms. I mean, the SS uniform is fucking brilliant. They were the rock stars of their time. Don't tell me I'm a Nazi because I have uniforms. I had my first black girlfriend in 1967 and a lot more since then. I don't understand racism. I never thought it was an option. Well, you know, just as well he wasn't editing Loaded in the late 90s, eh? Well, yeah, James Brown, <laughs> James Brown, the godfather of Loaded, got sacked from GQ for pu- publishing an article to that effect, didn't he? Mm. And um, uh, Brian Ferry basically got cancelled for uh, for expressing that, that, that kind of view. Um, yeah, it's mm. funny with these guys, isn't it? These people who say, well, I'm just interested in history. Well, mm. yeah, yeah. They, they never collect stuff by the from, from the Peace Corps or the International Red Cross, do they? Mm. <laughs> it's just, yeah. Also, the Confederate Confederates' uniforms were shit, man. Yeah. So that's where his argument falls down. Mm. Well, he used to wear a Confederate cap, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. But then again, so did New Edition. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, where does that leave us? I mean, by the by, not to say that Lemmy's woke or anything, but there is that famous (laughs) clip of him responding to a letter from a black fan. Um, which you've probably seen, I don't know. Um, he gets a letter from a black metal fan who's just asking him, you know, loads of people take the piss out of me because I'm black and I'm into metal, blah, blah. Mm. And his response is beautifully done um, mm. because he talks about not only his experiences with Jimmy, but also that rock and roll is black music, yeah. ultimately. And, yeah. and you know, uh, you know, good on Lemmy for that. Even the lighting rig for last year's Bomber Tour was a reconstruction of a Heineken Mark III, which absolutely ruins the legend that he once pointed to it at the beginning of a gig in Germany and said, good evening, Dresden. I bet you haven't seen one of these in a while. And seeing as Dresden was still part of East Germany and, and off limits makes the story double bollocks, mm. alas. Mm. 
He is war obsessed. He is war obsessed. But I mean, it's a per- it's a perennial thing. He's a typical seventies bloke, isn't it? Mm. As we've mentioned before, the seventies were absolutely sodden with swastikas in the UK. Yeah. Oh God, yeah. Usually in twenty four parts with a free binder. Yes. Um, you know, <laughs> and, and the 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 thing is that it's a frequent thing with rock and rollers from Bowie all the way through to Marilyn Manson that they are fascinated with the mm. with the prettiness, if you like of, of yeah. fascist imagery yeah is that an excuse i'm not entirely sure yeah i mean it's about the power dynamic as well because yeah, exactly. it, it does yeah. mirror and mimic the dynamic of being a rock star so much yeah and i think yes. that's what marilyn manson was picking up yeah. on and satirizing yeah. so much i know marilyn manson is now persona non grata but i just think the way he just sort of uh, exaggerated that that kind of fascist element to rock and roll mm. was was magnificent well that goes all the way back to 1969 when albert goldman did a gig review of the rolling stones and compared it to the Nuremberg rallies. Right, yeah, right, yeah. yeah, you yeah. Know? There's a lot of stuff in um, the Dick Hebdige book, Subcultures, about the use of the swastika in punk. Mm. And basically, he exonerates them, um, as if it's his place to do the exonerating, I, I mm. admit, of anti-Semitic intent. Because he says it's, it's completely to do with shocking the parents. Because if you think about it, punks were mostly born in the, I guess, late 1950s uh, or in the 1950s. That, that was the era that people of the punk generation were being born. So basically, they're the arse end of boomers. So yeah. their parents were people who probably fought in the war. Yeah. And if you want to piss your parents off, you dress as the yes. baddies. He dresses the yes. baddies. I mean, there's that Man Alive documentary about Hells Angels and Skinheads from about 1970, mm-hmm. I think. And he begins with a Hells Angel wedding in a pub in Birmingham. This girl gets married to a boyfriend who's known as Hitler. And he's got a swastika flag wrapped around his shoulders. So in the 70s, if you wore a swastika, you're basically saying, I'm fucking odd and evil I am. Mm. Grr. Yeah. Yeah, you know much. what I mean? But the downside of that is when punk came along, uh, I got a mate who's a bit older than me and he said, yeah, any lad who drew a swastika on his hold all or his satchel or anything, just all the black kids used to beat the shit out right. of him until they stopped doing it. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah. The black kids knew what it was all about. Yeah, I guess it's uh, analogous to that situation with Matchbox using the, yes. uh, you know, the, the the Southern Rebel flag, as they would call it. Mm. The only thing with that is it's a bit harder to draw on your rucksack. But yeah. Yes. Yeah, I went for the much more safe and politically, actually, no, it's not less dodgy, hammer and sickle every yes. time. <laughs> and a CND logo as well. In yeah, my of course. Yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. And let me just add an interview in 2017 with uh, Mickey D, one of his former drummers, uh, who was asked about what Lemmy would have thought about the riot in Charlottesville, which ended in a right-wing cunt ploughing his car into some people protesting against a statue of Robert E. Lee. And he said... Oh, he would have hated it. I can totally speak for him there. He hated that shit. A lot of people judged him on collecting war stuff, but he hated fucking Nazis. He hated stupidity, and he was fascinated by the stupidity of the human race. He would probably write some incredible lyrics about it. He thought it was so ridiculous. Well, yeah. I think I'm willing to give him benefit of the doubt on that. I I, I buy that. I I will. Uh, uh, Also, look lyrically into the lyrics for one of their best sort of later LPs, 1916. He he's mm. talking about the stupidity of war and conflict throughout that, and the stupidity of the rise of kind of um, didactic leaders. So yeah, I, he gets mm. a pass for me. Anything else to say? My favourite fact about this single is that there was a lapse of quality control at the pressing plant, which right. meant that um, a number of the seven-inch singles slipped through the net that had Kate Bush on the A side. <laughs> 
Right. <laughs> so I love imagining all these fucking greasy rockers getting home from the record shop, dropping the needle on the record, expecting Lemmy, and getting Kate Bush screeching away. Like, what the hell is this? <laughs> Amazing. Neil, right, I've got a question for you. Mm. Now, now that we've seen the three heavy bands yeah, on yeah. this show, mm. yeah, yeah. Whitesnake, Saxon, Motorhead, yeah. right, where would you place them on the sandwich scale? Right. right. So basically, okay. Okay. Um, just to do to, to do a reset for for, for brand new listeners, um, Neil has previously judged bands according to whether he'd let them make a sandwich for mm. him. Mm. Um, mm. The Stranglers, for example, being a hard no. So mm. yeah, basically, White Snake, Saxon, Motorhead. What's the order? Right. Okay. The order is as follows. I think the last person that I'd have a sandwich of if, is David Coverdale's White Snake. Um, <laughs> they they right. look awful. I don't know where his hands have been, you know, Coverdale. Um, no, no, I wouldn't have one off him. Um, Saxon would make a delicious sandwich, I think, um, full of stout Yorkshire ingredients, I'm sure. But, you know, the one I'd want the most is Motorhead. Reason being, I remember um, going to festivals in the 90s, not knowing anybody, and going backstage and going to the bogs and just a layer of speed and cocaine over everything that you could just harvest for yourself. Um, yeah. And I reckon a motorhead sandwich would have that much loose amphetamine in it. I'd be buzzing for <laughs> fucking days. So, yeah, yeah, I'd go for the motorhead sandwich, please. Hardcore horseradish going on there. <laughs> fucking hell, yeah. When he was interviewed in The Decline of Western Civilization Part 2, that was in his kitchen, wasn't it? Looked quite clean. Oh, no, hang on. That was Oz there. Forget I spoke, everyone. I'm a thick cunt. Carry on. I know there's shots of him in denim sort of uh, tiny pants. Yes. <laughs> most unsavoury. <laughs> That's it. But I think his hygiene would be impeccable in the kitchen, albeit with a bit of amphetamine added in, which is fine. The fucking short shorts, man. This is something yeah. that comes over in... Uh, have you seen Lemmy the movie? No. Oh, it's yeah, it's a documentary. Like, uh, It's really good, actually. Yeah, um, good, yeah. Dave Grohl is in it quite a lot. And um, he talks about the fact that Lemmy would walk around LA wearing these tiny little denim <laughs> hot pants. <laughs> <laughs> you know, not you know, you know, like uh, metalers normally wear those kind of big knee length shorts. No, no, yes. Lemmy was going the kind of uh, Aussie rules footballer. Uh, yeah, or the, or the uh, Leopoldo Luque, Mario Kempes, Argentina, nineteen seventy eight length of short. Mm, you know, mm. fucking <laughs> hell, that, that's just a um, an unsightly image for the mind. My favourite bit in that though is uh, when um, I, I think I've got this right, but but Grohl tells his story of being at LAX airport and and Lemmy's there and this car pulls over and it's a fucking stretch limo and the tinted windows wind down and it's little richard and like they're all really excited wow. to see little richard but little richard's kids are there and they um made him pull over because they're really excited to see lemmy wow and uh, yeah i i love that yeah 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 what a time if you're a metal fan to be alive 1980 i mean if you're like a i don't know 13 14 15 you've got all this exciting new music but you've also got a huge back catalogue going back 10 years of similar shit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Paranoid gets into the charts soon, doesn't it? True, yeah, yeah reissued, yeah. yeah. And it's at that crucial point before MTV gets hold of it and before the mm. Americans get hold of it and blow it all stadium-sized. Yeah. It's, it's still in that sort of excitingly, thrillingly close place. Mm. There's probably not another Nawabaham-friendly episode like this episode. No. Mm. The combination mm. of both these bands, but also, of course, Tommy Vance presenting. It's an absolute fucking bomb for Metalheads, this episode. Mm-hmm. 
So the following week, the Golden Years EP soared 15 places to number 8, its highest position. The follow-up, Ace of Spades, got to number 15 for two weeks in November of this year. They had an even better 1981 when two more EPs, St Valentine's Day Massacre with Girl School and Motorhead Live, got to number five for two weeks in February and number six for two weeks in July respectively. The band continued with an ever-changing lineup, with Lemmy as the one constant member all the way until December of 2015 when he died in Los Angeles at the age of 70. But this very month, an avatar of him was one of the headliners of a virtual Ozfest on that there tinternet. Did you see that? No, yeah. I caught a glimpse. What the fuck? It's all you need. <laughs> yeah, that is definitely all. Yeah, you it was very PlayStation Two, wasn't it? Very much so. Very much so. But I mean, Le- Lemmy is kind of cartoonish anyway. Yes. Um, so yeah, kind of suitable. Oh, don't know about you, Pop Craig Johnson, but we've got chronic headaches now. So we're going to stop for a bit and come back tomorrow for the final part of this episode of Chart Music. Don't forget, there is a video playlist for every episode we do, and this one's no exception. Everything we talk about, everything we listen to, just everything about May of 1980. So if you're tired of using your ears, why don't you use your ears and your eyes and tuck into that playlist. All right, me dears, see you tomorrow. My name's Al Needham. They're Simon Price and Neil Kulkarnair. Rock! Sharp music. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.